Hi everyone! Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that the audio is still a little bit of a work in progress. We were using uh, Anchor to record this episode as well, so that required a good internet connection, which sometimes is not a guarantee in life. So bear with us as we try to figure things out, but by all means, I hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Hi! Hi! <laughs> I'm Tammy. And I'm Leanne. And welcome to the second ever episode of Incrimination. Yay! Um, before we jump into today's case, uh, we just wanted to do a bit of housekeeping, um, and then I'll let Leanne take it away. So the first thing we wanted to address was that uh, our audio in the last podcast, and maybe even this podcast. We'll see. Um, we'll see. <laughs> Uh, was not the best, for sure. I mean, Leanne was a bit hard to hear in the last one. Uh, we think it might be because of the fact that she's calling in. We are doing this uh, remotely because Leanne's from Edmonton and I'm recording in Calgary. So there are some technical <laughs> difficulties that we are facing. We're hoping to get some new equipment if this becomes a more stable thing. And uh yeah. yeah. Well, right now we're just using headsets that make us look like telemarketers that we both got from work. So <laughs> They're nice headsets. They are. We somehow got the exact same ones. Yeah. Twinning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the second thing I wanted to address was uh, regarding our last episode. I forgot to mention this last time when we were recording, but on the day that I started my research, which was June 18th, I found out that um, Justice Peter Nguyen, the person who was in charge of the Hello Kitty murder trials, he actually passed away on June 16th of 2020. So I just wanted to say rest in peace to him. Yeah. It's, I don't know, it's kind of weird that he, like, put them away for long enough just so he wouldn't have to deal with them once they're out yeah it's kind of the timing of it hey because he just passed away yeah. and then they're getting up at the end of this year yeah exactly so. but yeah that's all the things i kind of wanted to address and uh leanne did you want to tell us a little bit about our case today i don't even know the name to be honest it's all good. I'm going to hear all about it right now. I also feel like I'm about to sneeze, so I'm just going to, like, fan myself for a second. Because I really don't want to sneeze into this mic. You can hear the fans. <laughs> okay. Um, so, jumping into today's case. So, this is a story of someone named Mona Fandy. Uh, and it's like kind of like a short case. I don't have like a ton of notes on it. So I tried to add like tidbits about like the place it took place in and things like that. So mm-hmm. essentially, this is a story that kind of revolves a little bit around witchcraft. And yeah, it's kind Ooh. of interesting. Okay. So this case took place in Pahang, Malaysia. So it's one of the larger states in peninsular Malaysia. And this was in 1993, so quite a while ago. So Mona Fandi was born in 1956, and her real name was actually Mazna Ismail, but we're just going to call her Mona. 
and I'll explain why in like a second. Okay, so, I was just gonna ask no. why. <laughs> so before she, all of this, she was actually a pop singer. What? Fandi was her stage name just because her um, like real name was kind of hard for her to be noticed with, I guess. So she was a pop singer for a time. She released an album called Diana One in 1987. Um, and she kind of appeared on TV a few times, but she had a pretty short-lived career in like the, the music industry. And apparently, like this is so weird. It's just like she was a water ballet thing, just means synchronized swimming. So she was uh-huh. a synchronized swimmer. So I guess none of these things just worked out for her. <laughs> So she switched into spiritual witchcraft, which is known to be like FOMO in Malaysia or in other words, a local shaman. What shamans were kind of responsible for, they were there to heal illnesses, whether that's through exorcism or just, you know, connecting people with spirits or even just dealing with spirits in general who are inflicting bad luck or problems onto people. And essentially, they were just seen as the medium between the human world and the spirit world. There were also traditionally seen, again, as like doctors, so healing those illnesses and things like that. And their origins stem from prehistoric tribal people and generally seem to have originated from Southeast Asia. And in terms of the Bomos in the Malaysian region, they did try to adapt their practices with um, Islam just by integrating like Quranic phases, phrases into whatever they were practicing. But this is a little bit controversial too, because some people saw it as, you know, like you're taking away from what it traditionally was. There were some articles and recent articles uh, where Bomos were used to try to locate the missing flight MH370. Oh, no way. And also to they were looking for maybe a, a cure to coronavirus as well. So it's like very recent and there's still a lot of people practicing it. And I don't know about you because coming from like my family, there's always a certain level of superstition around things. Mm-hmm. So like certain traditions you follow, certain things that like you may not believe in a hundred percent, but you're superstitious enough to like think about it. Dabble in it sometimes, you know, consider it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and maybe believe a little bit of like its effectiveness because I know even with my grandpa when he was sick I, I know that was a consideration of you know hiring a shaman and they're freaking expensive oh. like we I don't think we went through with it but it's it's very expensive to hire oh. them for their services as well as we'll kind of see in this case Interesting. So, yeah. and we were talking I about this today, but I'm excited to maybe do a little bit of a mini series on on shamanism just because I, th- I i think it's just so interesting to dig deeper on on cases surrounding that but that might just be my nerdy said <laughs> <laughs> i mean this entire podcast is our nerdy side i know it's like <laughs> to dig into asian culture and history to learn more about that while also going into crime and things like that. <laughs> I know. I'm like, even the case that I'm researching for our next episode, yeah. I'm finding like little bits of like, oh, like history and like gangs and how they came to be. Yeah. yeah. It's so interesting. And I, I think it's something that I never learned about in school because we focus a lot on Western history. 
Mm-hmm. So I know that we were supposed to have learned about Asian history in grade six, but for some reason that year the curriculum just changed. Oh, and really? So, I think we learned a little bit about China, but it was like, this is how you write Chinese, and then we never <laughs> yeah. did much more than that. Oh, I think we learned about like the Great Wall, maybe. Yeah. And like, what is a dynasty? <laughs> so long ago I don't I barely remember most of it but yeah this is like a good way for us to to learn about history so with um like kind of with the witchcraft that and whatever you want to call it it's been named like different things some people just refer to it as witchcraft others as shamanism and things like that they often would offer their services to upper class society because that kind of superstition does kind of transcend to all levels of society but because it's so expensive it's generally mostly accessible by people who have money obviously so mona claimed that she provided the umno which is the united malays national organization party with a lot of her services so charms or talismans is that like a political party yes okay so at the time, that was like the ruling party. So I didn't look. They still are. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, because it was pretty common for people to be superstitious, they easily attracted a lot of high class clientele. So during this time, she worked with her husband, uh, Muhammad Noor Afandi Abdul Rahman, who was 37. And she was also 37 at the time. And they had an assistant by the name of Juraimi Hassan, who was 24. There was a state assemblyman for the constituency of Batu Talam in the Pahang state. I hope I'm saying all of these words right. He he was basically like our equivalent of an MP. Okay. You know? What's the word? State assemblyman for the constituency of Batu Talam. What's a consist- con- constituency? <laughs> <laughs> it's just basically, you know, when you vote, you have like your area that you vote for, like you vote for a representative for that area. Uh-huh. So he was basically like the representative of that area. Okay, okay. Yeah. So he apparently went to Mona for help. And this was someone who went to school in the United States. And he was a very, very ambitious politician from that party, the UMNO, who she claimed to have, you know, help a lot of people from. So altogether, Mona, her husband, and their assistant promised to give him help by providing a talisman. What they were selling to him was that this talisman would help him become invincible. And because he was a very ambitious politician, I guess I was like very attractive to him. And he, you know, you want to be invincible in in the political world and, you know, be successful in that way. I thought it'd give him power and stuff. Yeah. So he was really much after that kind of success and, you know, hoping to get some protection on this end, I guess. For these items, they demanded 2.5 million Malaysian ringgits, which is about $800,000 Canadian. And then for people, if we have listeners in the United States, I guess, <laughs> that's around $600,000 in total. Mazlan paid them 500000 instead for just kind of like to hold bond in a way. Uh, and then he also gave them 10 land titles. deposit. Yeah, and then he gave him 10 land titles as a surety for the remaining 2 million. Through like the research that I did, it was kind of weird. Like the dates were a little bit jumbled. 
This money that he gave him, the 500000 he withdrew this on July 2nd, 1993. And pretty soon after, he was reported missing just because it was a large amount of money to withdraw one. And then also he went with Mona and them to start this like cleansing ritual thing. If he doesn't show up to places, people are going to notice and report it quite soon. So the murder itself is suspected to have taken place sometime between 10 p.m. on July 2nd, so the day that he withdrew the money, and 12 a.m. on July 18th. They basically made an appointment for cleaning rituals that took place at Mona's house. So I'm not sure what this really entails, but some sort of ritual to maybe like cleanse him before they gave him the talisman to make him invincible. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) I was reading this. It was like, it was very abrupt, I would say. So Mona basically told Maslin, who was the politician, to lie down on the floor with his face up and mm-hmm. then to close his eyes and wait for money to fall from the sky, which is a very strange command, to be honest. <laughs> and next thing, if it was that easy, I would I know. be making so much money. I am laying down all the time. I know. There are so many times where I just like, I'm tired, I come home and I just lie down on my floor. Uh And that's it. Instead of money falling from the sky, what actually fell was an axe. Oh. So, Jeremy, which was the assistant, basically just dropped an axe and chopped off his head. They didn't stop there because what happened next was they dismembered and skinned his body. Because... Oh. decapitating him wasn't enough, I guess. And there wasn't Did a they skin him first and then decapitate or and then dismember? Or did they like dismember and then individually skin those parts? Logistically, if they were smart about it, they would have skinned him first and then because then like you have like the skin fully. That yeah. sounds really morbid, but you know what I mean. <laughs> they also cut him up into 18 different parts. So that was like the dismembering, but he was cut up into like 18 parts, which is quite a lot. Yeah. Like trying to think like how you would cut a body into that many parts. Like which parts would you chop? Yeah. I think I, I might, I might see if I can find it again. I don't know if it was real or like an accurate representation or if it was just like some random diagram but there was something that I saw that kind of showed like different lines of like cuts oh that's crazy maybe that was it I'm just gonna go double check and see if I can find that again and post that in our in our Instagram post yeah but yeah apparently too they immediately like the day after went to Kuala Lumpur where she got a Mercedes-Benz and a facelift. Oh, my God. And later on, um, like, you can scroll through my notes and look at the picture later, too. She looks wild. Like, she literally just looks like a witch. <laughs> and I'm just like, what facelift? Like, you look so creepy. <laughs> they basically used the money, so the 500000 that they did get in cash to go on their shopping spree. So again, that was sometime between July 2nd and July 18th. And on July 22nd, the police found his body in a storeroom near their house. So he was basically um, buried in a hole that was about six feet under their storeroom. After that, they were obviously arrested. 
Um, and their trial didn't take place until February 9th, 1995. So that was about, what, like a year and a half later, a bit more than that. That's a long time. They were tried by the Tem- Temerlo High Court with a seven-person jury. And <laughs> this jury literally took 70 minutes to arrive at a unanimous verdict. They were like, yes, that's like an hour and 10 minutes. They were probably like, yeah. Isn't that pretty small for a jury? Yeah. They're usually 12 people, uh, at least in Canada and in the States, I guess. Okay. But interestingly enough, this, like after this case, the jury system was abolished in Malaysia. So that was like one of the last cases to have been tried by a jury. Which is just a fun fact. <laughs> That's so interesting. I, w- why, I wonder why they did that. Yeah, because I think juries are pretty common, at least with Western society. Mm-hmm. So all three of them were found guilty, and they were all sen- sentenced to death by hanging. And another kind of fun tidbit on this was that um, Amnesty International opposed the execution of the trio. Like, they didn't want them all to just die. They obviously thought that they should be punished for what they did. Right. But they just didn't find that as a just verdict. Or not verdict, but like a just punishment for them. But, you know, I will not comment on that much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kind of like, I feel like every country has very different ways of managing their justice system and the types of punishment that arrives upon people. So it's always like an arguable thing when it comes to capital punishment. Yeah. Death penalty is always like a tricky subject. Mm -hmm. Leading up to kind of like their sentencing day and things like that, it was reported that she would apparently wear very fancy outfits to, to all of her like hearings or like any time that she had to go to court and stuff like that. And there are pictures of her. I swear to gosh, you wore like the same red dress every single time, but with just like a, it's like a red tank kind of dress. Mm -hmm. And then she would just wear like a different colored shirt underneath it. She would just like wear really fancy and expensive clothing and smile for the cameras, stuff like that. That's so gross. I'm just like, like you literally dismembered someone. Are you freaking serious? Yeah, we'll be sure to like write the ugly Mona. Yeah. And their assistant actually did testify against them during the the trial and he revealed the details of the murder. But I guess like it wasn't an immunity deal or anything like that cuz he was hung as well. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean it, it was probably like a guilt thing then yeah. at that point. Yeah. So Unfortunately, like, so they got the verdict, right, in 1995. That was when they were basically sentenced. The case lasted for 65 days, and then they were sentenced. They tried to file for appeals. Because you know how, like, mm-hmm. after you're sentenced to, like, a death sentence, you still have to wait a bit before yeah. you're... It's not, yeah. like, an immediately, like, boom. <laughs> yeah. And I think... So they tried to file for appeals multiple times, and they were dismissed by the courts in 1999. So again, this is like four years after already. And then they tried to get a pardon from the pardons board in the Pahang state. But then again, they were refused, which thank God. (laughs) 
on November 2nd, 2001, they were all hung and apparently they expressed no remorse whatsoever as they were walking up to, you know, to be That's crazy. Yeah. And I, I wrote in my notes, I'm like, how does this get worse? Because it kind of does. Apparently she, up to her, like being hang, hung, God, I can't grammar today, but <laughs> as she was going up to get hung, she was wearing a really bright and colorful dress. And she said, wow, it looks like I have so many fans. Because I think people were like there to Ew. watch stuff like that. She's and so gross. I know. And she smiled saying that I will never die as she was being executed. Ugh. Like, disgusting. Is that like, like what mental problem is that? Is that just It feels narcissism? like narcissism. Yeah. That's what it feels like. God, that's, what a crazy. It's just wild. I don't know. But at the time of their hanging, she was 45, her husband was 44, and Jeremy was 31. And there were some people trying to argue that, you know, the assistant was super young, because at the time he was only 24. Uh-huh. Oh, but, that's our age. Yeah. And he helped them basically kill it. And he was the one with the axe and le- who let it drop, yeah. right? And they yeah. had been scheming, basically. Like, the motive behind this that people argued for was that it was just for the money. Because he was rich, and he was, like, in a way, I guess he, like, was a bit desperate to get this. So, yeah. It makes me wonder, like, whether or not they escalated to this, or if it was just, like, a plan that they had, like, a long time. Yeah, I think they're at least from what I was kind of reading, it was, it seemed like it was possibly schemed so that they did want to just go after him and they like sought him out and were like, hey, we have these services if you ever want them. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Wow, that's so shady. (laughs) I know. So there was actually a film released in 2018 called Dakun. It was put off for a while. Like they produced the film and it's just surrounding this whole case but it was very controversial and the government was basically like please don't release this but it ended up being released back in 2018 oh that's so recent i know no i haven't but it's like it's what so many years after i don't know i'm always so like i might actually give it a watch and maybe watch a little (laughs) bit of it and just see Uh how i like it I don't I, think I, you'll like it, but I know, <laughs> I know. But that's basically it. I I just like the witchcraft part of it, but there wasn't like a, a whole lot in it. It was more so just you know driven by yeah. like on on the victim side. It was driven by like a sense of superstition and you know wanting to I don't know be invincible maybe or just like be able to succeed in his career as a politician. So right, wow. That's so sad. He seems like he had a lot going for him. Yeah. I have a lot. In my notes, it's like every time I type something. So my notes is like, then they all dismembered and skinned his body. Dot, 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 dot. Fuck. Because <laughs> <laughs> as I was reading it, I was just like, oh, fuck. They let a, an axe drop on his head. And then uh, they decided to take it a step further. So that's crazy. I, yeah, I read like something very brief again because I couldn't find like multiple sources to back it up. I didn't want to throw it yeah. in here either. But yeah, that's one it of was our very, troubles. 
it's so hard to find a lot of resources when it comes to cases that aren't reported on too much, you know? Yeah, or especially at least not like in English. reliable ones. Yeah. Because the English articles usually just repeat each other. Yep. <laughs> they they literally the just source. build off each other. And I'm like, yeah. I just read this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but apparently her husband was a pretty big fan of hers for her music, I guess. <laughs> oh, so he was a groupie turned husband? Yeah, I guess so. That's so interesting. But yeah, she she looks scary. Like I wait, I'm gonna look her up right now. Yeah. Yeah. Even the dress she's wearing, like going up to her sentencing and stuff like that, like it's a bright red. Which is it it, it just came off like ah. super creepy, you know. <laughs> the girl who plays her in the movie looks good. Yeah. I agree. She's very pretty. <laughs> so yeah, that is the nice. case okay. of yeah. Mona Fandy. Wow, thanks for t- telling us about that yeah. case. I've never heard of it before. Yeah. It's it's I like looking into like different regions too. I think that was part of the one where when I googled it, it was like top 10 cases. <laughs> right. <laughs> Most of our <laughs> Almost our ours, yeah, it's going to be that, but then we'll dive into other ones that we're interested in later. Thank you for listening to another episode of Incrimination. Feel free to leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Incrimination. Our show notes can be found in the description of our podcast, but you can also find our show notes at in case you're lazy and don't want to search it up. It's bit.ly slash incrimination. That's where you'll find all of our resources that we used, all of the articles and links for our episodes. So feel free to check those out. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Okay, bye.